Hi, my name is Sunny Kim, and today's passage is in Romans 16, verse 1 through 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epanetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Ensyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I, um, I warned Valerie. I said, you want to think about who you get to read this passage? Because it's basically a list of hard names. Um, wow, Sonny, well done. Um, that was really amazing. Um, my name is Todd Malone. I'm the lead pastor here at FBC, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. I'm excited that we just got to celebrate the single greatest holiday of the year last night. Um, of course, I'm talking about uh, the clocks being set back an hour. Um, and... Um, I'm glad that uh, we all remembered to do that. Um, I'm excited for all those who are here. I also want to say hello and give a wave to all the people who are joining us online. We're uh, really pleased that you are with us as well. Uh, you are just as much a part of this as those who are here, and we are excited to have you with us. Um, one other comment I'm going to make. that Sarah said that in the garden took her back to her college years. Um, I was really excited when I saw we were going to sing that this morning because that was my stepfather. My stepfather's the one who really raised me. It was my stepfather's favorite hymn, and we sang it at his funeral. And um, it is not the same arrangement that I remember us singing when I was a kid, but I know that he would have loved that arrangement. And I'm excited that that hymn is going to be passed down to future generations. Um, whatever the arrangement. Well, um, I like bridges. I think bridges are cool. 
Um, this bridge is um, not really fancy. It's kind of a plain bridge. But um, I think even in its simplicity, it is beautiful. It's functional. It looks like this giant hand just kind of gently set it down right in this very rugged terrain. Uh, this is a picture that, um, well, I was going to say that I could stare at for a long time, but I think the fact is by the time that we're here this morning over the last few days, I have stared at this for a very long time um, and just wondered what is it like to be on top of this bridge and look out and see the view? What is it connecting? What's on each side of that bridge? What happens if you just continue down the roads? Um, I just think it's fun to think about. Uh, just a quick aside, uh, kids who are here, I love that we have kids here. Uh, I have a homework assignment for you that you can do right now. Um, I see some kids are getting ready. Draw me a picture of a bridge. Um, draw me a picture of a bridge that just really cool looking or really beautiful or really fun. Just draw me a picture of a bridge, show it to me afterwards. You don't get anything for it. Um, So, adults, here's your assignment. Think about how the passage that Sonny just read from Romans 16 is itself about a bridge. Think about what Paul is talking about as he writes these words about how people are bridged. You see, society back then, just like today, creates all kinds of canyons of separation, right? There's one that comes to our mind right now that we can think of. We've got Republicans on one side and Democrats on another, um, and Libertarians, uh, you know, just others, Independents are somewhere in the canyon. Um, <laughs> we've got... Um, white, and I don't mean that these all go together, I'm just trying to make a point about canyons. We've got poor, rich, right? We've, we've got things in our society that we can look at and say they divide us. In what sense is Paul talking about the church being a bridge? that connects those. And what I want to argue is that that's exactly what we get this picture of. Uh, when I first looked at this passage to start preaching it, my very first thought was, why did I not give this passage to Slade to preach? <laughs> because it's a list of greetings. But as I dug into it more, what I realized is that the Holy Spirit I mean, the Holy Spirit has inspired this as much as any other part of Scripture. It's here for a reason. It's not on accident. What is he doing here? Well, what he's doing is he's giving a picture of how the unity of the church radically disrupts our culture's thinking and values. And I hope that's what you see by the time we get to the end of this. Well, let's remember where we are in the book of Romans. We are um, at the very conclusion of the book. We actually have one more passage that we're going to look at after this, and then we're going to spend two weeks basically going back and putting Romans back together again. 
We've looked at it in pieces. We're going to look at it as a big picture. Uh, So we are almost at the end. And what Paul does in this ending part is actually a very common part of letters that were written at this time period of history. First thing he does is he basically gives a recommendation for someone who he is sending. And the second thing he does is he greets people. But I think there is a lot to be understood in what's going on in this commendation and what's going on in this greeting. Paul is basically putting on display countercultural unity. So what I'm going to argue is the whole point of this passage that Paul was, was doing here is, is he was greeting a church that challenged, even disrupted society through its unity. And I want us to see how that happens through the makeup of the church, the membership of the church. And I want to see how that happens through the the responsibilities and roles that different people had in the church. And then at the very end, uh, we're going to talk about kissing. Um, You can see who was and was not paying attention when Sonny read the passage. Um, So the first thing I want you to see is is that he is writing to a church that bridges cultural divisions through its very makeup, its, its very membership. And we start to see this right away in verses 1 and 2. And I'm actually going to spend less time on this section than I will um, a little bit later. But I just want to highlight a couple of things that we're talking about as we look at the people in these passages. Um, he starts off by talking about Phoebe. Phoebe is a Greek name. And it's a woman. And what the other thing that we know about her, um, and I'll explain this more in a little bit, but we've got a really good indication that she was wealthy. She was probably a very wealthy Greek woman. Now, Paul, after introducing us to Phoebe, and that's his commendation, lists 26 different people that he greets. And at first, it looks like just a series of names, but we actually know a, we actually know a little bit. We know something about most of these people, or at least can draw conclusions about these people because of their names, because of how Paul describes them, maybe how Paul talks about them other places in the New Testament, and in some cases, even how they are talked about, they're mentioned outside of the Bible, in, in other literature, in one case, even in um, inscriptions that were found in catacombs. So we are able to know a little bit about some of these folks. So we're going to observe who these folks are that he's talking about. We're going to do this pretty quickly, and, and I want you to just to see the very diverse makeup of the people that he's writing to. He talks about greeting Prisca and Aquila, Well, if you grew up in church, you may have heard Priscilla and Aquila, and uh, because they're talked about in other places in the New Testament. This is them. That's just a shortened name. It's a kind of like a nickname that you would use for Priscilla, so it's the same people. We know that they're husband and wife and that they're Jewish. Now, another thing that we uh, can conclude is that it looks like Priscilla was someone who was never a slave. She would be called a freeborn. And Aquila appears to be someone who had been a slave and is now freed. 
That's why when you see them in the New Testament, it's always Priscilla who is mentioned first. Because that, is a, that would be the culturally accepted way to reflect the fact that she's really of a higher social class than he is. Um, Eponidas, Greek, male, we think of freed slave. Mary, Jewish, woman, that's a common name. Uh, but in that time period, even though Mary is very common today, that's a name that you would give to someone uh, who is Jewish. Andronicus and Junia, uh, we think husband and wife. My kinsman indicates that they are Jewish, but they have Greek names. What's the significance of that? Well, if someone became a slave, their name would be changed in most cases. Not all the time, but, but a vast majority of cases. And actually what could happen is if someone was a slave to this person, and that person sold them to another person, their name might change again. So by the fact that they are Jewish, but have a Greek name is a really strong indication that they were slaves, and they were probably people who were, um, they probably spoke Greek. Now, why is that important? Because they would have been outcasts amongst the Jewish community. Right, if you were Jewish, if you were Jewish and you went to synagogue and you were a Greek speaker, you went to a different synagogue from the Arabic speakers because you were not a part of their group. It would be like someone showing up who is wearing a University of Texas sweatshirt um, to a Texas A&M party. And they would say, wait a minute, we're all Texans? And the A&M people would say, yeah, whatever, you don't belong here. Um, it's, it was that kind of a mindset. So um, that gives you an indication of, of probably who they were. Ampelitis and Urbanus, these were very common names given to male slaves. These names are Latin uh, so that may indicate where they are from. There's a chance that it's an indication that they were part of a very elite family. Stachus, Greek, male, probably a slave. Don't know a whole lot about Apelles, um, male. It's possible he was either Greek or Jew, we just don't know. Now this is interesting. The family of Aristobulus in the family of Narcissus. Notice that Paul doesn't actually greet either of them. He greets their families. Why doesn't he greet them? Two possible reasons. One is that they were not Christians. Another is, and this is very likely with Narcissus, is that he was dead by the time Paul wrote this. The reason we say that is because there was a famous Narcissus at that time who had died by the time that Paul wrote this and um, was very, very well connected and same with Aristobulus, this is, there's reason to think that this is actually Herod the Great's grandson. Um, so these are people connected with these individuals. Um, when it says family of, one of the things that we have to do, and I want to constantly remind us of this because we actually, it's really easy to get confused about this. 
family is talking about a household. And a household in the first century was very, 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 very different from what we think of today. A household in the first century would have included multiple generations of people living in the same house. It would also have included all of their slaves. Slaves were considered part of the household. It also would have included people who had been slaves of that family, but decided even after they had been freed to remain a part of that family. And a household wasn't just talking about a family unit. It was also talking about all of like the business, the family business that went with that. That's why it included slaves and freed slaves and so forth. It was, you would almost have to think of this, of a combination of a small business and a family completely interwoven, and it could easily be 25 people that would make up a household. So yes, goodness. Um, so we are talking about a lot, potentially a lot of people. Uh, Herodian is interesting. This is a Jewish person. Again, Paul calls him my kinsman. Um, but he has a Greek name, and the fact that his Greek name is Herodian kind of leads us to believe that he may have been a part of um, the, Her- the Herod's family line, Herod's family heritage. Trifinius and Trios, Trifosa were probably sisters. Uh, Persis, also a woman, uh, it was very likely that they were freed slaves. Rufus in the, uh, was in a popular Latin name. Uh, it is most likely that if, since he had the name Rufus that he was probably someone who was born free and so would his mother have been. Um, this is speculation, but this is interesting speculation. Do you remember Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross? Do you realize that it says in Scripture that Simon of Cyrene had a son named Rufus? And we don't know this for certain, but there's reason to believe that that's this Rufus. Um, Here you have two groups of five people. Probably these represent two different house churches that are grouped together, uh, all Greek. Um, the first five, these are all male. And in the second five, you have two women, and the rest are male. These are probably all slaves. How do we know that? Well, through the names. And this name is really interesting. Flagon, Fleegan, Fleebegon, um, which... I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. The reason that's an interesting name and the reason we know that that was a slave is because that name translates into blazer, as in set something on fire. And that name was a very, very popular name to give to a dog. You didn't give it to people. It would be like someone today naming someone Spot. He was a slave. So, where are we going with all this? 
let me put these names together in some different ways so we can really catch who it is that Paul is addressing in this passage. There are nine women that Paul talks to, almost twice as many men, 16. Um, the two households, we, I don't include the leaders of the households, Narcissus and uh, Aristobulus, because Paul doesn't greet them directly, and we don't know what the makeup of their house, households were, but for those who are listed, that's what we have. In terms of ethnic background, you have uh, seven, that's right, seven different Jews. The most important thing to know about this is these are all of your Gentiles, Latin and Greek. Remember the history of the writing of the book of Romans. The church in Rome had been founded by Jewish leaders. But at one point, the emperor Claudius says to all the Jews in Rome, get out, and he exiles them. And that leaves just Gentiles in charge of the church. But then, eventually, the Jews are able to come back in, and Paul is writing to now this mixture of Jews and Gentiles who are trying to figure out how to meld back together again. And you can see the impact here of that exile. Most of the church is now Gentile. Social status. Here's your highest status, freeborn. Here's your lowest status, slave. It goes down from there. You have three people who were freeborn who are mentioned. You have uh, the vast majority who are slaves. Now, here's what's really fascinating. In the city of Rome at this time, 40% of the population was freeborn. 30% of the population were former slaves that were now freed. 30% of the population were slaves. Do you see how different the makeup of the church was from the society that's around them? This was a place where the poorest and the powerless of society found a home. And may the church always be that. Um, some of you may know this part of church history because it is recent church history as in like the last 15, 20 years. Uh, there has been a movement, there was a movement, still probably out there, that the way you build a church is that you attract the most powerful and influential people in your community to your church, and they, in turn, will attract other people who want to be around them. Uh, that is a strategy for one of the largest evangelical churches in the country that many people set up as a model to follow. Um, it is not God's strategy. God's strategy looks exactly the opposite. The people who were in this church that Paul is writing to were as diverse as you can imagine. Their ethnic and their language backgrounds were different. Their, their rank within society was different. The very existence of this church crossed all kinds of, of cultural canyons that separated their society. And you're going to see the same thing when we look at how Paul talks about the different responsibilities that people have. Um, 
there are some of you here. There's one person in particular I'm looking for because she's writing a thesis on this, um, but I'm not seeing her. Um, who are now leaning forward and excited because we're about to get into a couple of areas that um, are controversial and fun. Who knew you could have so much controversy in a list of greetings? Here's our first one, Phoebe. She was a servant and she was a patron. This word servant is the Greek word deacon in the female form. Um, we don't know exactly what the role of deacon looked like at the point, or deaconess, at the time that Paul wrote Romans. Here's what we do know for certain. It absolutely involved ministering to the needy in the church. This is a wealthy Greek woman, probably getting her hands very dirty in uh, work that might have been considered beneath her. Patron says that this is someone who um, was in the role of financially supporting people who were in need. Uh, and in fact, it says that, that Paul himself was a benefit of that ministry. Now, here's the other thing that's important to catch about this section, these two verses. The commendation in a letter was very often written to commend the person who was carrying the letter to the people who were going to receive it. This is not just a delivery service. This person had an extremely important role because what they would do is they would gather the people, and in this case, it could be from as many as five different house churches, which is interesting. They would gather the people together, and Phoebe would actually read the letter to them. But more than that, she would have rehearsed with Paul exactly how he wanted the emphasis to sound at different parts of the letter. She would have rehearsed with Paul how to answer questions on his behalf that would come up after reading the letter. In other words, we are talking about someone who was so well-respected, so well-trusted, such an important leader within their church that she is the one who is going to speak on Paul's behalf to the Romans. First roles you get are servant, deacon, deaconess, and then patron. Paul talks about uh, Priscilla and Aquila as fellow workers. He uses the same Greek word for Urbanus. Um, these appear to be people who were missionaries who worked with Paul. He's talking about this terminology, fellow workers, also the way it's used in other places in the New Testament, seems to be talking about missionaries, specifically missionaries who worked with Paul. You've got a similar word. It's actually different in Greek, but in English it looks similar, that is applied to Mary, and it's applied to the three women, um, Tryphenia, Tryphosa, and Persis. And this is a Greek word that is used in other places in the New Testament to refer to people who were leaders, who were teachers, 
and were so important in the leadership of the church that Paul argues that they should be supported financially. Paul goes on to talk about Andronicus and Junia. Uh, This is really where certain people are going to be leaning forward and going, I wonder what he's going to say now. Here is our key term, apostles. Who are the apostles? Well, there's the 12 apostles, but in the New Testament, that term gets applied to more than the 12 apostles. Paul applies that term to people who saw the risen Jesus and then were commissioned by Jesus, basically go be missionaries. Now, think about this for a second. Whether or not they had any official office, if someone who saw the risen Jesus and was specifically commissioned by Jesus to spread the gospel walked in through our doors and we got over the fact that they've been dead for 2,000 years, if they walked through our doors everything would stop and we would say, you tell us what you want to tell us, right? I mean, these are people who had been with Jesus. And that's how apostles uh, seems to be used by Paul in, in other letters. So, if you read this in English, it sounds like these are people who are outside of the apostles, but the apostles know them. But that, you can translate the Greek that way. But if that's how you translate the Greek, you would, it would probably be the only time in Greek literature that we know of that this is how you would translate that Greek. The word to probably should be the word among. That is how it is always translated in Greek in that time period. And well-known is highly regarded. It is saying that these two people were not outside the apostles and known to them. They were part of the apostles and were very, very highly regarded from amongst that group of apostles. If you look at every single writer who wrote about this passage from the generation right after when Paul writes this letter, on and through, through 1,200, for, so for 1,200 years, every one of them understood this to mean that Andronicus and, Junius and Julie, Junia were apostles, part of that broader group, and were highly regarded. In the year 1200, or in the 1200s, I don't know if it was the year 1200, it became um, disconcerting for certain people to think that a woman could be an apostle. So they added a letter, Greek sigma, at the end, and turned it from the feminine form to the masculine form. Some of our English translations still follow that today. But I want you to understand that until the 1200s, the first 1200 years of the church, everyone acknowledged 
that Junia was a woman who was an apostle. Just leave that hanging. Okay, I just said that. Um, these last two groups do not have titles given to them. We're not going to focus on them. But I do want to point out that it appears that in each of these cases, these are leaders of a particular different house church within Rome, right? Because you've got a broader group that are identified for each of them that they're a part of, and these five in each cases are particularly singled out, so they are probably leaders within a broader group that met in separate homes. But they don't have a specific title here. I can't tell you that they are leaders, so let's set them aside for now. Uh, and let's look at what we've got here for the type of, type of roles and responsibilities that Paul's identified. You've got deacons or deaconesses held by a wealthy Greek woman. Patron, financial supporter, held by a wealthy Greek woman. You have fellow workers. That is a way of talking about missionaries. It's held by people who are Jewish, Latin, men and women, freed, born free. You have laborer, which refers to leaders and teachers, Jewish slave, Greek freed, all of them listed here are women. You have apostle, authoritative missionary, Jewish husband and wife who are slaves. Do you see how radically countercultural this is? Do you see that you have a wealthy Greek woman doing work and getting her hands dirty and caring for the poor and the needy and the sick within her church and within her community? Work that, that would probably be considered well below her. You have Jewish slaves who have positions of authority when they walk into a church. Think about in our culture today how we assign roles and responsibilities. Been a part of a number of boards, board of directors for different nonprofits, and with the exception of me, uh, those boards are usually filled with people who are rich, powerful in their community, influential within their community. Think about politics, right? I mean, none of us like to think about politics. Um, who gets to be our politicians that run for office every year? In general, they are people who are well-connected and easily marketable. Not always. How many times do you hear people volunteer to do a job that's not in their job description? That is beneath their position. Our churches must reflect the truth that the gospel does not come to us based on social position and it does not call us to service according to social position. The unity in the church should look nothing like the unity in our culture. In fact, the unity in our church should disrupt our culture's thinking and values. And that's exactly what I want to show us in the last section. So let's talk about kissing. Kids, if you want to draw a picture of that, no, I didn't say that. Um, wow, did I just get in trouble with some moms? Um, before we talk about kissing, let's talk about just social realities of that time a little bit more. This was a society 
that the day-to-day operations of that society were designed to reinforce social separations, right? For example, if you went to the Colosseum in that time period, where you sat depended on if you were born free, if you were a freed slave, or if you were a slave. If you went to, I mentioned this earlier, if you were Jewish and you went to a synagogue, the synagogue that you went to would depend upon the language that you spoke. And how you greeted one another was also designed to reinforce the separations that existed at that time period. Greeting one another with a kiss was part of that society. But there were rules. Women would kiss other women. It was not considered appropriate to kiss a man. And we would largely agree with that today. Um, Under certain contexts. Within social class, that's how you greeted one another with a kiss. You did not greet someone outside of your social class with a kiss. In fact, one of the fascinating uh, aspects of medical history at this time is that there was a skin disease that was going around amongst the upper, upper class of the Roman Empire. And what they realized is that the way it was passed was through their greeting each other with a kiss. And it never went outside of their social class because it was not done that someone from the upper class of Roman society would greet someone like that who is in a lower class or a different class from Roman society. The closest thing that you would find to an exception to that was you could greet one another with a kiss, or you could greet someone else with a kiss if you were showing respect to them as an authority figure, and usually you're going to kiss them on the hand. Um, so, for example, you find, you find cases where someone is brought before the emperor, and he will kiss the emperor's hand. He will greet him with a kiss. And it would not be the case that the person in the higher authority would necessarily respond in kind with a kiss. It was kind of a one-way thing. So here's the point. This small greeting was a symbol for how people thought about each other. It was part of separating people into their place of society. And so what is Paul doing by telling them to greet one another with a holy kiss? Well, first, let's acknowledge the fact that this is a holy kiss. Um, So it is a kiss that is designed to reflect Christian love for one another. And then we get to this word, it's one word in Greek, one another. This is a Greek word that has the idea of being mutual, of being on level playing field. What Paul is saying, basically a way of thinking about this is Paul is eliminating the one-way kiss. Paul is saying That every believer deserved the exact same respect. Every believer should be showed love towards, or should show love towards every other believer, regardless of issues of race or gender or social status. Everyone, everyone should be greeted in this way that was a sign of respect and affection, and the rules of social class, the rules of race, the rules of gender, those did not apply. When you understand that, and if that really sinks in, 
This is a Rosa Parks moment. Remember Rosa Parks? She refused. She was a black woman who refused to give up her seat on the bus and go to the section that was supposedly reserved for people of color. And what's at stake here is not so much where you sit. What was at stake in that moment was how do you see me as a person? And that's exactly what's at stake for Paul here. How are we as Christians going to view each other as people? How you greeted one another in Paul's day reinforced segregation between people and between classes. And verse 16 is a way of of declaring that every one of us is equal. It might seem small to us, but I promise you it was not small in that culture. It would not have been a small thing to watch Phoebe or Priscilla greet a slave with a holy kiss. That would have been disruptive like Rosa Parks. It would have made the people watching uncomfortable and even angry because the social structures of their society were being undermined by how Christians thought about one another and how they valued one another. And then ultimately, how they treated one another. You think about what's the principle from this passage, this series of greetings that carries over to us today, I'd like to suggest that the principle is this. Build disruptive unity. You want to disrupt our culture? You want to disrupt what's going on that you cannot stand in a world that more and more is abandoning anything that looks like its Christian past? At least in our country. If you want to, if you want to disrupt that, here's what you do. You show this world a radical unity. Nothing wrong with protests if they're done appropriately. Nothing wrong with writing articles. Nothing wrong with Facebook posts. But I promise you the most effective way that you are going to disrupt this culture is through a radical unity that Paul shows right here. How is it possible to have this kind of radical unity. It is only possible when there is something that is uniting us that is more important than politics, than race, than gender, than wealth or social status, and that is the gospel. That is what Paul has argued through this entire book. That if we truly understand and live the gospel, we will live as people who are radically, disruptively united. So what does that look like in November 2020? I don't know. Anything going on now? You're going to find yourself disagreeing with people in this church about politics, about what they put on social media, You're going to find yourself angry with some of them because you think they're absolutely wrong. How are you going to handle that? My encouragement has got to start with the perspective inside. Ask yourself if you see and value that other person as someone for whom Jesus died. 
you're going to find yourself being around people that, frankly, feel like they're too much work. You need to ask yourself if you see and value those people as someone that God pursued in his love. Ask yourself, what is the fundamental reason that you support, engage with, build into the lives of the people around you? Is it because they are just like you? Or is it because they share in the gospel with you? Paul creates a picture of the church where people come together who had never belonged together in their society. It's a picture of people engaged in roles and responsibilities the world would never have given them. It's a picture of people embracing one another with a love and respect that undermined how this culture valued people. And that's the point. That's the point that Paul is making. Paul greets a church that is challenging, that is disrupting the society around it through its unity. And the implication for us today is to challenge and confront our culture through our unity, especially in November 2020 in an election season. Funny thing about this bridge, it's in the San Gabriel Mountains near Los Angeles. That bridge doesn't go anywhere. The road or roads that were supposed to connect this bridge were washed out by a flood. So it stopped being a bridge and it became a destination. It's a place that people hike to, take selfies, leave. We can build a wonderful church with great programs, exciting things going on, but could be nothing more than a destination. If the basis of our unity is what we look like, how we vote, how much or how little money we have, then we have built a bridge that is not crossing from one side to the other. It is not helping people cross into unity. If we are truly united by the gospel, the other differences are not going to matter. We will cross the canyons of politics and race and gender and wealth and whatever else divides us. How do we make this practical right now? As always, I can encourage you to rewrite the passage. That just sounds weird. I'll give you a hint to make it easier. Um, the Greek word that's translated greet, a way, great way to translate that is greet. Um, but beyond that, it's probably going to look a lot like what the passage looks like. We need to do some heart work. We need to confess and repent of ways that we have made others feel like they are not welcomed amongst us. We need to trust that unity really is the strategy for challenging our culture. And then we need to follow. We need to follow the example of Jesus. We need to be like Jesus. And one of the practical ways we do that in our culture is in how we respond to social media. Are your responses to the people who disagree with you in the body of Christ to show them that they're wrong or to make them feel stupid? Or is it to show them that you love them?
and make me feel accepted. I think the strategy that we see in Romans is really clear. Disrupt our society with unity. Would you join me in closing by praying for that exact thing? Heavenly Father, we come before you. We are amazed when we step back and think about the people that you put together in your family. Lord, you love us because of your grace, not because of how we look, what we accomplish, how much we're worth, what we do. You love us because you love us. Lord, we confess that we are sinners and that we don't do that. We tend to accept people because they think like us or look like us or they make us feel comfortable or they don't challenge us. And we confess that that way of relating is sinful. It is wrong. It is loving people with far less love than you love them. And far less love than we are capable of. And we say we are sorry and we ask for your help in changing that. We ask for your help in changing that. This election season where tensions will be high, opinions will be strong, and there is a lot at stake. Lord, there's nothing at stake, frankly, that's more important than the unity that we have for one another. And we ask that you would help us with that. But thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you that you forgive us even when we treat one another badly and that we can fall in the arms of our Savior who says you're forgiven. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let me leave you with this thought. What have we said about God today? We have said that God wants to build a culture-disrupting unity in this church. So your challenge as you leave here is that you must embrace what God is trying to do. What will be most important today in your relationships with one another? Will it be the gospel or will it be something else? Make it the gospel and you are dismissed. For those who want to pray, we will have a prayer team that comes forward here uh, and will be available to you if you want to pray about anything going on in your life right now.